Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to uh, Luke chapter 19. And, and while you're finding that, in case you didn't know this, that um, the young man, uh, the male vocalist, is the director of our um, senior high student ministry, quite a gifted young man. And the, the young woman who was singing with him is his sister. <laughs> I thought that's kind of cool. All right, you follow now, now that we've had that family tree. Um, uh, as I begin reading in verse 11, I'll read through uh, verse 27, a parable um, that Jesus tells here. Here we go. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, <laughs> oh, it endures forever. Guys, the, the parable that I just read you is very similar to another parable that's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Um, these two parables get confused one with the other because there's, there's so much similarity between them. The most well-known similarity is that statement about, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That, that is found in both parables, and they, they, generally speaking, uh, are saying the same thing. So the two parables are, are confused. But they're different parables, um, one parable, the one that Matthew includes in chapter 25, is told in the city of Jerusalem. 
It's after the triumphal entry. Uh, Jesus is only days away, maybe hours away from from his crucifixion. Um, And that parable is told there. This parable that I just read you from Luke is told in Jericho, in the home of Zacchaeus. Um, uh, So there will be uh, maybe four or five days that separate the telling of these two parables. Um, uh, He tells it in in Jericho, and then he moves in Jerusalem and tells it again, but with a little bit of difference. Uh, I had to choose one of those parables because I'm trying to um, shorten the series. So I chose the one in Luke, and the reason I did is because it seems to me that it is a bit simpler to understand than Matthew's version. So that's why we're in Luke and not in Matthew. It seems to me that this one is fairly simple, uh, and the major points rather uh, pretty much stand out. Let me show you those. Um, The the first major point really can be found in verse 11. And um, Jesus gives you in verse 11 his motive for telling this parable. And the motive is twofold. He says, you see the word because twice in there. Um, He tells it first of all because he's near Jerusalem. That is what what, what he suggests, what what, what we are to think is um, that he's near Jerusalem In a matter of seven or eight days, he's going to be dead. And so I need to tell them what I expect of them while I'm gone. The the other part of the motive is that um, he needed to correct a false notion that was had on the part of his servants, his followers. Because they thought, oh my goodness, uh, we're getting close to Jerusalem. Um, And they begin to get excited about perhaps... This is the time that Jesus is going to usher in his kingdom, um, establish righteousness, and finally throw off that, that yoke of Roman oppression, and he's going to take us in there, and he's going to whip up on those suckers. And so to correct that, he tells his parable. So you see that. That's the, you're told that in verse 11. That's uh, why he's telling this particular parable. The second major point, or maybe the second point that I want you to notice, is that this nobleman, who is the the featured character in this parable, this this nobleman, who of course is Jesus, this nobleman must leave. But at some time in the future, he's going to come back. Um, At which time, that is when he does come back, All of mankind will be gathered, assembled, so that they can be accountable to this nobleman who is Jesus, who has come back. When he comes back, he will come back not so much as a nobleman, but as a nobleman who is a judge. But that is not going to happen right away. It's going to be a while. Now, The third point that that I would want you to see about this parable is that it is addressed to two different groups of people. you got to keep that in mind or you'll really get confused. It is addressed to citizens that are introduced in verse 14, and then they are called enemies in verse 27. These are the folks who have 
an open hostility towards this nobleman. They have overtly rejected his rule. We do not want him to rule over us. And they flatly refuse to acknowledge him uh, as their king. The, the idea that they will one day give an account to him is one that they willingly and passionately reject. And then we're told in verse 27 that those people are brought before him and destroyed. <laughs> in fact, ladies and gentlemen, um, the word that is used is slaughtered. You see it? It's a rough word. And to stand up here before this modern 21st century Western audience and tell them that Jesus is going to Slaughter? <laughs> oh my. Not only is that uncommon, but it is, it is the object of utter disdain. I mean, they, it's the butt of jokes on Saturday Night Live. They turned it into parodies on Saturday Night. It's, it's something that um, is, is scoffed at by at least the Western, well, actually probably all the world. The whole idea that that there's going to be a slaughter at the, when the nobleman comes back. That's, uh, that's, that's ridiculous. That's, um, that's uh, antiquated. That's, that's irrational. But here's what they do believe. My, my buddy R.C. Sproul um, says that what they believe in is something that he calls justification by death. And, and by that, he is describing the 21st century man's view of the, of the afterlife. That is, if they have a view of the afterlife at all. If they have a view of the afterlife, then what it is is that they believe that death overcomes everything. That all you've got to do to get to heaven is die. Thus, he calls it justification by death. Guys, you've been at funerals like I have um, in the past. In fact, one of my earliest experiences as a pastor was at one of these funerals just like this. Where um, you've been sitting out there in the pews and, um, and uh, you know the deceased. And you know that this man or woman, uh, this man has, has lived an absolutely raunchy life. And, and the speakers up in the front are, are saying all of these nice things uh, uh, about him. And you're out there and you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a disconnect here. I know this man. I know how he lived. I know what, I know what went on. And, and you're saying that? Well, wait a minute. There it is. There's the justification by death. You know, um, I, I hear what you're saying up there, Mr. Speaker, but it doesn't match his life because I know his life. You know, um, very interestingly, Carrie Underwood, who is very cute. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, it, do you know who Carrie Underwood is? Carrie Underwood has a song out now, and it's called Two Black Cadillacs. Have you heard it? It's a ballad. It's about two, uh, a man who's got a wife and a mistress, and they, they find each other. 
that is the, the two women, and they found out what's, what's been going on. And, and, and in this song, which is, a, as I said, a ballad, um, the implication is that they kill him, that they kill this man. Um, and, and in the song, I, I won't sing it all to you, but, um, but in the song, um, she sings, And the preacher said he was a good man, and his brother said he was a good friend. And then she adds, which I think is just a stroke of genius. She says, but the women in the two black veils didn't bother to cry. Bye-bye, bye-bye. You know, you've been there. You've been in that situation where you've been in a, in a funeral and, the, and the, the speakers are saying, oh, he was just a fine man. And, and you know better. Do you know what that is? That's justification by death. That is that the only thing that you've got to do to get to heaven is die. You know the life of the deceased, that he was openly hostile to anything religious, and they're making him to look like a choir boy? He lived this godless life, and now he's dead, and all is well. But this parable says that those who reject his rule will be slaughtered Ladies and gentlemen, for me to stand up here and try to convince you of that is a fool's errand. I can't convince you of that. Um, I, I, I can't convince this culture. But here's the one thing that I can say to you. The one who told this parable is Jesus Christ. The speaker here is Jesus the teller of this tale is Jesus Christ so if you choose to reject this notion of slaughter it's not my word ladies and gentlemen it came right from verse 27 if you choose to reject that fine just know that you are choosing to reject that which Jesus himself taught. You know, I think it was Ravi Zacharias who said, you know, in our day, people don't care what you believe as long as you don't believe that it's true. You believe what you want to, you know. <laughs> as long as you don't suggest that it's true. I'm suggesting that this is true. You're, you're going to have to make your own call. You know, there was a, a preacher, he died years ago. His name is Vance Havner. And people quote Vance Havner right and left. And uh, he had this grumbly old voice. And, and uh, Vance Havner once said, and I'm quoting him, he said, plenty of church people are shaky about what they believe. But not many of them are shaken by what they believe. 
That ought to shake you. Slaughter? That ought to shake you. All I'm saying is, ladies and gentlemen, I am trying to teach you something that Jesus Christ taught in parabolic form. And the word that is used is slaughter. There's another group uh, to which this parable is aimed, and that, of course, is the servants. Now, don't, don't get those confused. They're, they're, they're two separate groups of people that, because there are two separate kinds of wickedness in view in this parable, <clears throat> and they're vastly different. Um, there are the citizens who hate him, and then there are the servants who fail him. Um, the difference is the difference between defiance and disobedience. Now, guys, if you've got all of that down, uh, all of those three points down, uh, his motive, um, the, uh, the identity of the, uh, of the nobleman and that what's, what he's saying about where he's going to go and when he's going to go back, and then the audience that he's addressing this to, if you've got all that down, then, then um, let's hone in on what I would suggest is a fairly obvious point of the parable, but I, and I would further suggest that it is, the, it is the real thrust of the parable. It is the point of the parable. And here's the point. What is it that Jesus Christ expects from his people while he is away? You really don't need me to figure that out. It's pretty clear in a word. He expects faithfulness. 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 Which is something uh, I think you would agree becomes more and more difficult in a culture that is deteriorating around us. All of our service to Christ will be done in a hostile environment, just like you find here in this parable. And some of you are sitting out there thinking, well, I'm Dr. Young. I mean, really? I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, a deteriorating culture. Isn't that a little bit overstated? I mean, don't you, aren't you good at that overstatement business? I mean, I'm not sure about that. Oh, deteriorating culture. Okay, well, l- l- let me just give you one of what I think could be a, um, a s- series of possible illustrations as to why I call it deteriorating. Let's just say you're a male high school student and you, and you want to live faithfully for Christ. You know, guys, back when I was in high school, um, back when we drew pictures of animals on the walls of our caves, uh, uh, we didn't have sexting back then. We didn't have... Instagrams back then. Guys, do you realize what your students are being sent via their phones, the phones that you bought them? I rest my case. You know, guys, I am firmly convinced that the greatest battle that the church is going to face and that you and I are going to face is the, is the battle to live faithfully to Jesus Christ and the gospel 
in the midst of a world that is in a religious tailspin to live faithfully no matter what the cost. <laughs> I shouldn't tell you this, but um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago or so, there was a huge news story, and I, I'm sure you saw it. it. It happened in Kenya, and I think it was Nairobi. I could have that wrong, but it was in a mall, you know, the Westgate Mall or the West Side Mall, and a, and a, a, a group of uh, Muslim terrorists stormed the mall and just started shooting up people, just killed lots of people. And, then, and, and I think you, if you read the news story, you know that not only did they do that, but before the, the army could uh, you know, uh, surround the place, they took a group of hostages. And, um, and while, uh, you know, while the army is getting their act together, uh, they, um, they, they had an exam. Did you know that? This is the truth. Uh, the Muslims gave an exam, a test, to, to figure out who was Muslims and who were non-Muslims. Um, and as I think I read, there were 10 questions in the test. And so I, I was sitting, it was in my time with God in the morning, and I was just sitting there thinking of this horrible thing that would, had gone on in Kenya. And I thought to myself, <clears throat> I, I said, uh, you know, you know, I've studied a little bit about Islam. I, I know a little bit because I've had to study it just so I can answer some of your questions. And, and you know, I wonder if I could pass that test. <laughs> I wonder, had they, had they, you know, captured me uh, and they said, you, step forward here. And they, and they gave me the quiz. If I could have answered their 10 questions. And, you know, and I thought, I probably could. And then I thought, I wonder how big of a sin it would be. For me to fake it, you know, just fool those guys and get set free because, you know, they, they, they let the Muslims go free and they kill the non-Muslims, Christians, some of them. And I thought, you know, I, I got to do this. Maybe I got <laughs> I'll show them. About that time, my wife gets up. She gets up later than I do. And um, she, she came in to see me, uh, which she normally does every morning. And, um, and I said, babe. Let me ask you a question. How, how wicked do you think it would have been? It would be if if I were to try and fool those Muslims and get set free. And she said, "Well, you just have to be a Christian martyr." And I thought, martyr. Why in the world did the word martyr never cross my mind? You know, guys, what I did sitting in my chair was just a shade better than what Peter did in a courtyard when he denied Christ three times. I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that the biggest battle we're going to be in is a battle to remain faithful to Christ in a world that is in a religious tailspin, no matter what the cost. Guys, the world doesn't give a flip if you, if you kind of vaguely believe in God. They don't care whether you believe in some kind of made-up Jesus, you know, like um, uh, Gandhi or Krishna. They don't give a flip whether you believe in Krishna. But folks, 
living faithful for Jesus Christ. is either the grossest piece of idolatry or it is the highest and purest purpose to my life. To spend our lives promoting the fame of Jesus Christ is either an utter waste of our lives or it is the most meaningful use of our lives. So which is it for you? Where are you? You in some kind of mushy middle? You better read this. You get to this issue of the mina, you know, and I read all these commentaries and these guys spend all this time on trying to figure out what a mina is. And, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it really doesn't matter. I think it's some kind of piece of money. But whatever it is, it's valuable. And it was, it was to be used faithfully to benefit his kingdom while he was away. He calls us to be diligent in the use of resources that he himself provided for us, and all of us got one. Whatever it is. Everybody got one. Everybody's got a minor here. So let me summarize. Here's what we got. We've got divinely given resources, all of us, with concrete responsibilities, all of us, opportunities galore to serve him, all of us, all of which is going to be done in a hostile environment. And in that setting, he expects of us that we be faithful. And one of the things that you discover in this parable is that a failure to do that is no small thing. This one servant that comes who had the mina and he hid it in a handkerchief and, you know, um, he doesn't use what the nobleman gave him. And do you, see, do you see what he's called in verse 22? 
Oh, that's all right, young man. We know that you were busy playing soccer. <laughs> we understand entirely. You had too much time to, that you needed to spend, uh, you know, on Facebook. You see what he's called him? Jesus calls him wicked. So our trifling, our negligence over our souls, it's called wickedness, not by me. By him. You know, there's a, there's a principle in the corporate world, um, and I, I, mean, I think... I mean, I've, I've read about it in several different leadership books, and, and uh, it's called the Pareto Principle, P-A-R-E-T-O. And I think most of you have heard of it before. Um, and what the Pareto Principle says is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. But that's true in the Church of Jesus Christ, too. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. So what does that mean? Does that mean that 80% of us are guilty? Does that mean that 80% of us are wicked? Whether we are or are not, it's all going to come to light when the nobleman returns, which we're told in verse 15. There's a report time. There's, um, there's a time in which you get asked something like this. What have you been doing while I was away? There's a day of reckoning, a day of accountability. And, and what you see in this parable is you see the pleasure of the nobleman over faithful service. But you also see his displeasure over the opposite. And this little dialogue that goes on in there about all the excuses that the, the guy tries to use, they all fail um, you know, it's, it's like he said, well, it was all yours anyway. I mean, you really didn't need my help. And the nobleman says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Um, it is true. It is all mine. But I issued you a command. I provided resources. And you did nothing. The fact that I am sovereign over all of life does not alter your responsibility. People have all kinds of excuses for our unfaithfulness. But none of them work. Now, guys, if you've been listening at all, you need to listen to this next three minutes because this is important. Is that man slaughtered? Is he destroyed? Does he perish? Is he sent to hell? No. And I say that for three reasons. First of all, he is not a part of the group called haters or citizens or enemies. Secondly, my faithfulness doesn't save me and my lack of faithfulness doesn't damn me. But even more importantly than those two, there is a word in the text 
It's the first word of verse 27. It's a conjunction. It's this word, but. Look, um, but as for those enemies of mine, go slaughter them. Do you see what he's saying? This is, but for these enemies, they get slaughtered. Do you see that? That conjunction, but, is so important to the interpretation of this parable that I, I tracked it down. I went to every translation I could possibly find. The but is in every one of the versions of the Bible, and that I still wasn't satisfied, so I went to the Greek text to find out whether the conjunction but was in there. And not only is it in there, it's in there emphatically. Let me tell you why I say that. The normal Greek particle that is translated but in the greek language is a little two-letter delta epsilon it's called a particle um it's d or day that's not in this text what is in there is a longer word plain pi lambda eta nu plain it's like jesus says um uh, but from the one who is not even what he has will be taken but For those who don't want me to rule over them, go slaughter them. You see, the unfaithful servant does not perish, but his punishment for not using what Jesus had given him was to lose it. Those who use their spiritual opportunities find more, while those who do nothing, they lose what they had. And they become hangers-on. They become consumers. Um, Is that you? You know, there's a statement in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but for the the hangers-on, they just drop the last four words and they simply say, we wrestle not. Is that you? Tell you one more story and I'm done. And and this is another true story. And you probably haven't heard of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian, a very well thought of Jewish historian. He wrote an enormous volume called History of the Jews. And uh, his his history is well attested and and, uh, quite reliable. But uh, there's a story in there, in in Josephus, that most commentarians agree that Jesus had in mind when he told this parable. The story that he had in mind was about Herod. Herod had died. His son, Archelaus, um, had gone on a long journey, like we see here, had gone on a long journey to Rome to receive his kingdom from the Romans. While in Rome, Israel or the Judah or Jews sent a delegation to Rome to tell Caesar Augustus that they did not want him, just like here, they did not want him to reign over them. The Romans sided with the Jews and denied Archelaus' request for the kingdom. 
Most commentarians suggest that that story was in the back of Jesus' mind when he told this parable with one very large distinctive difference. The fact that the citizens rejected his rule didn't change anything. It merely led to their slaughter. And so the picture in this parable is of Jesus on a long journey. A journey, by the way, that included a trip to hell where he suffered its torments on a cross and on that cross to bear the full fury of God's wrath against sin. My sin. And then his next stop after the resurrection was to be seated at the right hand of God the Father in a position of cosmic authority where he awaits the moment for his return when, after having received his kingdom, he returns to get his people who will be with him forever. Our Father, I I do pray that you will use your word to remind us of things that are important, that you will remind us of things that are true, that you will remind us of things that... um, that need to rattle around in our souls such that our souls might be changed. Pray, O oh God, that um, for us who are servants and yet um, so many of us unfaithful, I pray that you would stir us to a new determination to serve you well. But Father, for those of you who've led here this morning who have not yet met the Savior and the one who, is, um, who refuses to submit to your rule because um, of a rejection of you as their king, I pray that you will um, cause them to see that such a rebellion is of enormous consequence. Do that, Father. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Hey guys, the way that we uh, close our service is by saying, number one, we'd love to pray for you. If there's something going on that you would like to share with us, we are at your disposal. Secondly, if you've completed the new members class and want and feel like God has led you to Grace Van, we want you to come forward. We'd just like to introduce you and love on you a bit. And then finally, if you have come, still not yet redeemed, still outside the kingdom, but wondering, could you tell me more? Oh, it would be my privilege to do that. Come get me while people are leaving, and we'll see what we can sort out. Won't you stand as we grab it? He's how great a debtor 
daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. <clears throat> Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.